Hey everyone. It's a good level there. Thanks to our readers. Uh, grab your sermon outline and keep your Bible open at 2 Corinthians. You'll notice there's been a perforation error on your sermon outline, so just be aware of that and do with it what you will. But now let's pray again. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we praise you that it is blunt and honest and that at times it challenges us. And we pray now that these challenging words would shape us to be more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus who gave his life for us. Amen. I think I've played this game with you before, but who wants to play a game of who am I? Who doesn't love a game of who am I? Here we go. Who am I? I am female. I have blonde hair and brown eyes. I live in Sydney, Australia. I am known to many of you. I am the kids minister at St. George North Anglican Church. And I am married to Troy. Who am I? Sarah. Well done. Okay, next one. Who am I? I am male. I have a wife and three children and one dog. I live in Sydney, Australia. I have a general love for sport. Some would say I like to shake it off. My initials are PC, and I'm well known to you, and I'm in this room. Who am I? Phil Colgan, our senior minister, in case you don't know. Who am I? I am male. I have a love for music. I'm six foot tall. At times, I've been called lanky, skinny, resembling a stick. (laughs) It's Phil, apparently. At other times, I've been called hairy, hirsute, scruffy, the bearded wonder, and Wookiee. I'm speaking to you now. (laughs) Who am I? Troy. You got it. Well, isn't a game of who am I fun? Yes, always. Well, in our passage today, especially when you get to choose the people who they are, uh, in our passage today, Paul plays a little bit of a game like the game Who Am I? And it's surprising who he's actually talking about. But we'll get to that in a moment. Now we need to remember where we're up to in the story of 2 Corinthians so far. So, what have we been looking at in the last few chapters? Well, Paul has been playing the fool, hasn't he? He's been boasting like a fool to the Corinthians. He's been saying, these false teachers who have strolled in, who have preached a false message to you, they're fools. And so now I'm going to boast like they do so that I can show you what a real apostle is, a real teacher of God's word, someone you should really listen to, because I am an authentic apostle. So Paul, he feels forced to boast, to boast in who he is and what he's done. But what he boasts in is surprising, isn't it? Because he doesn't boast in his achievements. What does he boast in instead? His weaknesses. He boasts in all his suffering for Jesus. He boasts about his deep concern and his anxiety for the churches, that they be holy, that they persevere in the faith, that they remain faithful to Jesus. And Paul is not finished boasting. He continues in today's passage. Have a look at 12 verse 1. He continues to boast. He says, boasting is necessary. You see, he says again, the Corinthians... He feels like they've forced him to boast. This is the only way he can get through to them. He says, boasting is necessary. 
It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So Paul says, I have more to boast about. I want you Corinthians to know finally and fully that these super apostles, these false teachers, you shouldn't listen to them. You should listen to me instead. And so Paul goes on to boast about two things. You can see them on your outline there. Or at first it kind of seems like he comes to boast about two different people. So let's look at boast number one about a man who apparently went to heaven. Read along with me from verse 1 again. Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Paul begins by telling us about someone who he knows who's had a visionary experience. He was transported to heaven to see and to hear amazing things. He says this man was caught up to the third heaven, which I don't think means that there are multiple heavens, like there's one for angels and then one for people and then one for pets because you wanted your dog and cat to go to heaven when you were a kid, right? No, that's not what he's saying. It's a way of expressing that this man was transported into the very heart of heaven, the very heights of heaven, right into the very throne room of God himself. So this man, somehow or another, finds himself in heaven. Paul goes on to say, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Paul doesn't know whether he was transported with his whole body or just his mind and consciousness. He doesn't seem to mind, because God knows. All he can really say is that it was an incredible experience. Look at verse 4. He was caught up to paradise. He was called into the presence of God himself, God's throne room where he dwells. Then he goes on in verse 4. He heard inexpressible words which a man is not allowed to speak. This man saw and heard amazing things. Maybe things too hard to put into words. Or maybe things he was forbidden to repeat because they were too amazing, too magnificent, too holy for a human to utter. Maybe it looked a bit like John's vision in the book of Revelation. Can you picture that? Maybe there were multitudes of angels around God's throne singing. Maybe there were storms and lightning all around the throne. Maybe there was unapproachable light. Who knows? Whatever it was like, it was amazing. It would have been majestic. Think about it for a second. Heaven, God's throne room, that place is beyond our wildest imagination or comprehension. And Paul tells us, this man, he went to heaven. He had an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary spiritual experience. But why? Why does he tell us about this experience, about this man. And who is this man? Who is this man who went, apparently, to heaven? Who is this man in Paul's game of who am I? Well, come with me, because Paul starts to give us some big clues that will help us to find the answers. So have a look at verse 5. Paul says, I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. Here, Paul starts to shift from speaking about a man in Christ 
to speaking about himself. And things begin to blur and shift focus a little bit. Because remember, Paul, he's talking like a fool. He's boasting like a madman. And he's boasting so the Corinthians would see how foolish they are. And that they are following fools, the super apostles. And so Paul says, I will not boast about this. I will boast about this man, but not about myself. This man who had a vision, but not about me. But then things get a little more confusing in verse 6. Have a look. He says, For if I want to boast, I will not be a fool, because I will be telling the truth. Now he starts to tell us who this man is. Who is this man who was transported to heaven and saw amazing things? It's Paul. It's him. Think about it for a moment. He says, I know a guy who 14 years ago had a vision. Why would he be so specific about the time if it wasn't him? Because he remembers it. He says, if I wanted to boast about having visions and revelations, I would be telling the truth because I experienced them. He's saying, I am the man. 14 years ago, I had this amazing spiritual experience. And if I wanted to boast about such things, well, I'd be telling the truth. So if he's talking about himself, why does he go to the effort of speaking in the third person? Why does he play this game of who am I? It's kind of like when in a question time in church or somewhere else, someone puts their hand up and says, I have a friend who thinks like this or who has experienced this. What do you, what do you think about that? Paul says, I know this guy who went to heaven. But he tells us why in verse 6. So look there. He says, if I wanted to boast, I would be telling the truth, but I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. This is really important. And quite an amazing thing that Paul does here. He says, yes, I had a vision. Yes, I saw amazing things. God has given me this extraordinary experience. But I will not boast in them. I will not boast in this. In fact, I won't even tell anyone about it. Why? Because I don't want people to listen to me because of that. I don't want my ministry to be validated by visions. I don't want my ministry to be validated by anything except what people hear from my mouth or see in my life. Paul says it's my words about Jesus and my life of suffering and integrity that come with that. They are the things I want people to know about. Because otherwise, people might just be tempted to listen to Paul because of his magnificent experiences. They might just be tempted to listen to the gospel because of visions. They might just start to believe the message because of Paul the messenger. Or worse still, they might miss the message altogether because they're too focused on the messenger. And that's what the danger in Corinth was, wasn't it? These super apostles came in and they preached another Jesus, a false gospel. And because they were impressive speakers, or they had visions, 
or they ask the right questions, the Corinthians listened to them and followed them. No questions asked. Not even realizing that they were believing lies. So Paul reluctantly mentions that he too has had visions. But he does it to show them that they are being fools if that's what they really value. It's amazing, isn't it? Even as Paul boasts like a fool, he displays humility. He doesn't want people to associate him with those extraordinary experiences. He doesn't want the messenger to get in the way of the message. And there's an important lesson for us in this. And it's one we've been thinking about for the last few weeks, but becomes more pointed here. It's this. Do not listen to the teacher who boasts in themselves. Do not listen to the preacher who boasts in their extraordinary spiritual experiences. Can I please, as your pastor, warn you that this very day, people across the world have stood on platforms and said, God said this to me, so listen to me. I experienced this, and so now you need to go and do this. They claim God has given them visions and revelations. They claim God spoke to them directly in dreams or in their head or however. Some even claim that they've been to heaven and back. They tell of their extraordinary experiences on stages and proclaim to thousands of people that God has apparently spoken to them. So they should listen. Or they write, thousands of, or they write books and thousands of people read them and, be led, and are led astray from Jesus. Because from the most part, these visions and revelations, they just plainly contradict what's in God's word. They're made up, or they're deceived. And they're about another Jesus, not the real one. But what Paul is doing here has a bearing on, it, on these people too. Because Paul is deliberately choosing not to mention these kinds of experiences. In fact, he doesn't mention this one in any of his other letters, and it's not in the book of Acts. He only mentions it here because he's talking like a fool. He feels like he has to bring it up so they'll listen to him. And even when he does talk about his experience, he talks about some guy who went to heaven. Paul does not want people to look too highly on him. He wants people to look highly on the gospel. He doesn't want to be exalted. He wants Jesus to be exalted. He doesn't want to be a distraction from the Lord Jesus himself. So what would Paul have to say to preachers and teachers today who say, look at what I've experienced. Look at what God said to me. Wouldn't he shake his head? Wouldn't he say you're boasting in an unspiritual way? Wouldn't he say you're puffed up in pride and you're leading people astray? Listen to what Paul says about these people in Colossians 2. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm, and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. Now, don't get me wrong. God can do what he wants. He can give people extraordinary visions and experiences. He can give people dreams. 
But they are not meant to be proclaimed from the rooftops. The gospel is. People don't need to hear about crazy spiritual experiences. They need to hear about the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for them. They need the gospel. This is the kind of Christian environment that I grew up in. It was a church culture that put more emphasis on personal experiences of God than on the gospel of Jesus. And can I tell you, that is a dissatisfying way to do Christianity. Can I express to you the joy that as an 18-year-old I had when I became part of a church that focused on the gospel? A church that prized God's word in his Bible, seeking him day by day to see what he says in his revealed word in the pages of scripture. It was one of the most incredible times of my life. Ask Sarah, she was there. I couldn't believe what I'd been missing out on my whole life. A Bible-centered, Bible-loving, Bible-believing, Bible-saturated church. So as Phil said last week, Be careful whom you listen to. Be jealous for yourself. Don't let rubbish creep into your eyes and ears. And don't let claims of revelations or visions validate someone's ministry for you. In fact, let it do the opposite. Be wary of this kind of thing because at the end of the day, what we need is the gospel. And all things need to be measured against God's word. It alone is what saves and satisfies. But back to the rest of our passage. So apparently Paul had had this amazing experience that he doesn't want to boast in. But then afterwards, something else happened to him. We've heard about a man who went to heaven, but now we hear Paul's second boast, a man with a thorn in his flesh. So have a look at verse 7. He says, Therefore, So that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger from Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Now Paul has finished speaking in the third person, thankfully. That was confusing. And he begins to talk plainly about himself. So what's going on for him here? Well, after God gave him this vision from heaven, God gave him something else, the passage says. God gave him a thorn in the flesh. It's not hard to imagine a thorn or a splinter in your hand, is it? How annoying is the pain and frustration of a splinter in your hand that just sits there and you can't get it out and it's just constantly painful and inflamed. Don't make the mistake of looking up pictures of splinters. I made that mistake this morning. It was awful. (laughs) You can imagine it, clearly, can't you? How painful and annoying that is. Well, imagine a more substantial splinter or thorn in your flesh. Stuck, painful, infected. That's awful, isn't it? That's what Paul was experiencing somehow. Not a literal thorn. Paul wasn't arranging roses in his spare time. Oh, my finger. But some kind of experience that was painful and damaging. What was it? What was this experience he's talking about? Well, whatever it is, it's painful. It tormented him. He calls it a messenger from Satan. So it's very unpleasant. But other than that, he doesn't really say anything else about it. 
And so for 2,000 years, Christians have debated and theorized, what is this thorn in the flesh? What could it be? Was it the persecution that he faced? Was it a physical sickness or a disability? Was he injured when someone attacked him one time? Did he have trouble walking or speaking? There's this interesting passage in Galatians 4 where he talks about a physical problem with his eyes. He says, You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Maybe he had trouble seeing. Was that the thorn he was talking about? Or was it relational? Was there a particular person who really hurt him or hindered him? Sometimes he mentions people like that in his letters, doesn't he? Was it a spiritual attack? Was there a demon after him? Was there a temptation that he faced that just would not go away? Not something he gave into, but something he battled with day by day, hour by hour. Well, at the end of the day, I'm sorry to say, we can't really say what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Sorry if you were hoping for something profound. But maybe even the Corinthians didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe Paul was vague on purpose. And maybe it helps us because we know that we can then apply that to all kinds of physical or spiritual or other attacks in our lives. But regardless of what the thorn was, whatever this struggle and pain was, Paul cares more about saying why it was given and what God taught him through it. So why was this thorn given to him? Well, there's two reasons, and we've already seen the first. He says, it was given to me so that I would not exalt myself. And he says it twice to get the point across. In response to this amazing vision that Paul had, he could have been puffed up. He could have been proud. He could have stood shoulders high and eyes above others. Or others could have exalted him, as we've said before. They could have praised the messenger instead of the message. And so God decided that Paul needed a thorn. Something to humble him so that he or anyone else wouldn't think too highly of him. And then Paul goes on to show how he wrestled with this thorn and how he prayed about it. So have a look at verse 8. He says, Concerning this, the thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. And then Jesus' response here is amazing. Look at it. He says, But he, Jesus, said to me, Listen to these words. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul says, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul pleads three times that this thorn might be taken away. But what is Jesus' answer? Not this time, Paul. Not this particular thorn, Paul. No, for now, my grace, my gift of salvation in Christ, my mercy poured out to you through Jesus' death and resurrection, that is enough. That is enough to sustain you at the moment. I'm not going to deliver you from this thorn. Instead, I want you to find your satisfaction and your contentment in the gospel in the gift of salvation that is enough for you. And then Jesus explains himself with these radical words. 
Look carefully at them again. Verse 9, for power is perfected in weakness. Now what Jesus is saying here is remarkable. Because he's not saying, when you're weak, I'll give you my power and then you'll overcome the weakness and it will disappear. He doesn't say that. This is what many false teachers today say. No, Paul is saying, my power is given and displayed when my people are weak. Look at the last verse, the end of verse 10. Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? How can you be weak and strong at the same time? Well, it's because Jesus is powerful when we are weak. Jesus' power is most given and most displayed in us when we are weak and when we suffer. God gives us power to persevere, power to keep believing, to keep being faithful even though we're suffering. His grace is sufficient to sustain us. His gospel gives us strength to persevere in those circumstances. And not only does God give us power in our weakness, he also displays his power when we are weak. God uses our weakness to display his power. And he's displaying to everyone who sees, this person follows me even when it's hard. This person is sustained by my gospel. He is strong because of me. And so the Christian missionary who goes to the Middle East and is imprisoned because he teaches about Jesus, when he doesn't deny his faith but holds faithful, Jesus displays his power in his weakness. Or the Christian businesswoman who is fired because she would not lie and cheat in her work. Jesus displays his power in her weakness. Or the Christian uni student or high schooler who stands up in front of their classmates and declares Jesus is their Lord even though they don't have the words or they're timid. Jesus uses his weakness or her weakness to display his power. Or the person who is diagnosed with cancer but says to their children, keep trusting in Christ. Jesus displays his power in his weakness. Or the person who struggles with chronic pain but who keeps devoting devoting themselves to the fellowship and serving them even when it hurts. Jesus displays his power in their weakness. Or the man who willingly laid down his life so that we might be saved from the power of sin and death and hell. God displays his power in that man's weakness, doesn't he? Jesus and his power are perfected in weakness. This is what Paul has been trying to convince the Corinthians about for the whole letter. This is why we've titled our series Treasure in Clay Jars because in chapter 4, do you remember, Paul said that we have this treasure, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we have this treasure 
in clay jars. In our weak and frail and battered human bodies. Why? So that this extraordinary power of salvation may be from God and not from us. God displays his greatness. He spreads his powerful gospel, his treasure through weak vessels, us, jars of clay. God displays his power and glory through his weak and suffering people so that he gets the glory and not us because he deserves it. Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. When we are weak, Jesus is strong. His power is given to us to persevere in faith. His power is displayed for all our friends and family to see. So what does Paul do with all of this, with these words and challenge from Jesus? Well, Paul does two things. He gladly boasts and he takes pleasure. But what does he boast and take pleasure in? Look at verse 9. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my what? My achievements? My gifts? My spiritual experiences? No. Look again. I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may reside in me. If Paul has to boast like a fool, if boasting is necessary to get through to these Corinthians, he's going to boast in the opposite thing to the super apostles. He boasts in his weakness and suffering because Jesus' power is made perfect in his weakness. And in verse 10, not only does he boast in his weaknesses, but look at it, he takes pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and impressions because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it makes me think that Paul must have been a pretty happy guy, right? Because those things just keep happening to him time and time, day after day. I don't think it works exactly like that. Paul didn't delight in the sufferings. His pain wasn't transformed into rejoicing. He still felt the pain. There were times when he despaired of life. Times when he fled persecution. Times when he prayed that a thorn would be removed. But having prayed, he then trusted God with the answer. He knew God was sovereign. God was in control. God would work out his will exactly how he wanted to for Paul. And so knowing that, Paul then delighted in the opportunity to be weak so that Christ might be strong and be shown to be powerful. And so this passage teaches us, doesn't it, how to deal with the weakness and suffering in our life that we so readily know and feel and experience. We can pray. We can ask God for help to deliver us, to heal us, or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, What's more important is entrusting the answer and our whole lives to Jesus. Accepting his will and remembering 
that Jesus' grace is enough to sustain us. And then taking pleasure in the fact that God works powerfully in our weaknesses. Because Jesus' power is perfected in his people's weakness. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the weakness of our Lord Jesus, that he willingly took on suffering and death for us, insult and mocking, so that we might be freed, freed from sin and death and hell, and given eternal life. But as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus, Father, we ask that you would help us in our weakness that you would answer our prayers to be relieved of our suffering, but that when you decide otherwise, that you would help us to submit to your will and take pleasure, as Paul did, in the opportunity to display your power and glory to all the people who see our lives. Help us to be faithful in that suffering. Help us to persevere in weakness so that on the last day we stand with Jesus having shown his great power and glory to all who see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.